Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Z. Welcome to the Z-Dog MD Show. All right, today I have a special guest. Dr. Vinay Prasad is a hematologist-oncologist. He's Associate Professor of Medicine at UCSF, which is my alma mater, near and dear to my heart. He's also the author of a amazing new book called Malignant, about cancer therapeutics. And he... He also hosts a really cool podcast where they go deep on the science of things. And he's a person after my own heart, questions everything, does not just bow to the dogma, but looks for the evidence that shows, hey, are we? is what we're doing actually helping people? Uh, he had a book a few years back about medical reversals, how things we thought worked, turns out when you study them, don't. And it's so important when we're talking about building a more connected health 3.0 system. Dr. Vinay Prasad, welcome to the show, man. Thanks so much for having me, Z-Dog. I'm a big fan. It's a pleasure to be here. Listen, I'm not going to lie. I have mic envy. That thing is huge. <laughs> is that your podcast mic at SM7B? It looks like it. That's right. And uh, you know it well. Um, and it's a, it's a great microphone. Um, and, y- you know, you and I will probably, we could, we could nerd out on audio stuff for a while, but there's nothing better than, you know, just hearing that really crystal clear audio when you're listening to a podcast. That's what I like. And so I try to do that for my listeners. Okay, I hate you so much because my po- my audio has been so crappy for so long because I don't, we've been optimized for video. And so uh. now I'm starting, finally, I got a slightly upgraded mic. I'm trying to put a noise gate on and do all these things. But you can hear the slap back in the room. There's all kinds of treating I need to do. But I'll get, I'll get to where you are one day, Vinay. But so speaking of all that, people are tired of us talking shop. Um, I was really impressed a couple years back. I saw an article um, about you and how you are sort of, you've kind of been seen as a bit of a renegade within the hemonk space because you question things that have been dogmatically handed down forever. I mean, how did you, how do you think about therapeutics and what we do to patients in terms of do they work or not? Because this is the central question. Yeah, so that's a great point. I mean, I guess... uh... I, I wish it it, it, it it wasn't so unusual to hold these views. Um, you know, I mean, I think some of these things are just facts that, you know, cancer drugs these days cost exorbitantly large amounts of money. Average new cancer drug coming to the market, talking $100,000, $200,000 per year of taking it. Um, and it would be one thing if all of these drugs were sort of curative kind of treatment options, but you know, you and I both know many of them offer modest or even marginal benefits, survival benefits on the order of just one or two months. And so part of what got me into this was as an oncologist feeling some frustration. I wish I had better things to offer my patients. I wish they would pay less for them. And so I started to try to wonder, you know, why was the system the way it is? And that's kind of what led me to doing this work in Malignant. Interesting, you know, because they have that joke, right? Like, uh, why do they put nails in coffins to keep the oncologists out? Like, there, there's this sort of um, yeah. stereotype that you guys will throw the kitchen sink at people, whether or not it's actually going to produce meaningful prolongation of their of their life. And so you're actually saying, well, no, actually, you can study these things. Like, why are we speculating? And right. You know, in Malignant, you gave a great example of something that really kicked it all off, that, that really framed it well for me, which was autologous stem cell transplants for breast cancer. Can you walk us through this? Because so many, I think, of our, so many of our audience are healthcare professionals, but they've actually suffered as patients as well. So right. they've had breast cancer, right. they've gone through this. And so to think about, you know, when we talk about, oh, we should have a right to try and we should be able to throw right. everything at people and all that, what does that really mean are we actually doing the right thing with that? <clears throat> Walk That's us through it. it. Yeah, so this is a story that really got started, I think, in the 1980s and throughout the 1990s and maybe culminated in the early 2000s. And it's something that you know many of us are quick to forget about. But you know, in the 1960s and 70s, we developed some chemotherapy drugs and we were able to cure some diseases like testicle cancer, like Hodgkin's lymphoma. We had some real successes. And people thought, why are we not curing the diseases that we're still struggling with, like metastatic breast cancer? Why are we not making progress there? And one idea was that it was just a matter of dose. 
you know, we've gotten rid of testicle cancer. We've done wonders for Hodgkin's. If we could just push the dose a little bit, maybe we'd be able to cure metastatic breast cancer. And so an idea emerged, which was autologous stem cell transplant and high-dose chemotherapy. And the crux of the idea really is we're going to give a dose of chemotherapy so high it normally would kill somebody by eradicating the hematopoietic cells by destroying the bone marrow, but we're going to salvage them with some transplanted bone marrow stem cells. So we're going to give them a lethal dose of chemotherapy and then save their life. And in fact, the early studies that came out of like top medical centers with really the best minds behind it, you know, showed dramatic, impressive results, but... They didn't have a control arm. You know, they were uncontrolled studies. And that's something that, you know, you and I can talk about a lot of relevance for today and COVID and all sorts of things. Um, And enthusiasm for this practice grew. And then as so often happens in oncology, the for-profit motive took over. And a number of for-profit centers would advertise this service and just deliver it to women. And so we saw tens of thousands of women undergoing this procedure in an off-label, off-study kind of fashion. Finally, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, we had one of we had six ultimate randomized controlled trials. And if you put them all together or you look at the best ones, you find there's no survival benefit to doing this over just getting a lower dose of chemotherapy. Um, there is no curative fraction. And so it was this incredibly costly and toxic procedure that a lot of smart people believed in wholeheartedly that ended up not working. And I think the story of that is kind of a microcosm for so many other things we see in medicine today. You know, that story reminds me of a Richard Feynman quote, which said something to the effect of, we are the easiest people to fool, and we have to make sure we're not fooling ourselves. Because like you said, very smart people would look at that and go, hey, this makes, okay, it has biologic plausibility, so you can just nuke the person with chemotherapy, kill every single dividing cell, presumably all the cancer, or at least get, you know, a a reduction, and then save them with their own stem cells transplanted back. Now, as you and I both know, having gone through taking care of these patients, it is an effing ordeal. It is very, very difficult and toxic and a hard process. And then the question is, the endpoints that you're measuring, I think you brought up, you know, when you're looking at these trials, well, what are you measuring? If you're measuring like a reduction in tumor size, is that an appropriate endpoint to measure in terms of meaningful outcomes for the patient who's suffering with this disease? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? That's it. So well put. You know, as doctors, um, the first thing you have to remember as a scientist, as Feynman says, is don't fool yourself. And you can easily fool yourself when you don't have something to compare against that really is comparable. But your question is really about tumor size measurements. And this is just a really fascinating part of oncology, which is that so many of our drugs are approved because we know they shrink tumors. And what do I mean by that? We know that if you give it to 100 people, 20, 30, 40 people will have their tumors shrink 30% or more. That's the cutoff. That's the resist 1.1 cutoff that's been codified into law. And you're going to wonder, why is it 30%? Why not 35%? Why not 45%? And the answer is something I discussed in Malignant. It goes back to, um, it goes back to a 1970s study run by Charles Mortel, this professor. And he got 16 oncologists together, and they all brought their tool of the trade, their caliper of choice. And he put marbles on a table, and he rolls out foam rubber. And he says, at what size difference can we reliably tell these marbles apart with calipers. And those cutoffs to this day carry forward and they are the cutoffs for response. (laughs) What 16 men, they're all men back then, oncologists could feel through foam rubber and tell apart. Those are where the cutoffs come from. They were never picked because they predict living longer, living better. They were predicted because they were operational. We could feel them. And so that's part of the reason why this is a surrogate endpoint, just like your blood sugar or cholesterol. And it doesn't always predict what you care about, living longer, living better. You know, and uh, (laughs) that's insane. That's insane. And and, and the thing is, if people actually understood how much insanity is baked into the background noise of how we practice, they would understand something that I've been saying a long time. And I think I, maybe I overestimate, but it doesn't feel like I do, that 50% of what we do is BS and we just don't know which 50% it is yet. And the problem is we just haven't studied it correctly. And you hinted at something in what you just said, which is it was a bunch of men making these decisions. Same with the trials. These are not representative samples of a global population when you're doing these trials. Is that right? Uh, It's absolutely. Nail on the head. You know, one of the major challenges in cancer trials is the people who are enrolled in some of these studies are, you know, otherwise almost Olympians. They're people who are really fit. They're at least 10 years younger than the average age. They have fewer comorbidities. 
and you take a drug with real toxicity and a modest benefit that was tested in somebody young and fit, and you start extrapolating that to older, frailer patients like the kind you and I take care of, and very easily the balance of benefit and harm can tip. And I think there's a lot of evidence that shows that, that I kind of outline in the book. And it's something that you and I see, I think, as clinicians, where we wonder why is the trial results not applying to my patients as one might expect? And it's because we're studying them in really ultra-fit people. That makes total sense. And it also makes sense that now you apply the same sort of distorted model. And and I think that's the basis of a lot of that book is the book that you wrote, which is it's our policies and our structures and how we incentivize these drugs that that is the problem. It's not, you know, we have a scientific method. We have right. randomized controlled trials. We have evidence-based strategies. We're just not employing them correctly for our therapeutics. We're blinded by emotion, by by financial bias, right. by hope, and by fooling ourselves, like Feynman said. And so it, 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 it makes me think of COVID right now, right? Yeah. Because you've written about this as well. We're looking at whether it's hydroxychloroquine, whether it's uh, looking at vaccine trials, whether yeah. it's the cloth mask for the public thing. Right. And we're saying, well, look, there's this case study on a preprint archive that says we should do this. So let's go do this because it has biologic plausibility, meaning that makes some sense. And it feels right to my unconscious elephant here. So I think we should do this. And then public policy is made. I mean, do you think that's happening or do you think I'm overstating it? No, I think you are, in fact, accurate that this happens at all levels of medicine, um, that we you know, our, we, our tendency as doctors is to extrapolate. Um, we, just as we extrapolate in cancer from really um, ultra-fit people to older people and, and are surprised when the results don't hold up, um, when you start talking about something like COVID, we extrapolate in different ways. Um, we're looking often in studies that are done under really ideal circumstances, done in very controlled hospital settings, and people start to extrapolate that in a way that's never been extrapolated to making recommendations for entire populations of people. And you got to factor in that where we are as a society, we're an extremely divided nation, politically divided. There are strong factions externally seeking to divide us. Um, there is going to be unanticipated consequences to every sort of policy maneuver we make. And when you overstate, I think, what is known or shown, I think you do a disservice. And I think we've seen that a little bit in sort of shifting recommendations and then people lose trust in agencies. And so I think, you know, as a scientist, above all else, having modesty and being able to say what you don't know for sure, where you're making leaps, I think that's really important. Whether you're talking about, you know, universal cloth masks or hydroxychloroquine, where the data is still, you know, really out there, we don't have the answers yet, um, versus whether or not you're extrapolating cancer drugs to a patient who doesn't look anything like the person in the trial. Um, I think the more humility you inject in that process, the better. I agree. And I think what you mentioned about the divided people uh, currently, and we've done shows on this, it's really a we have our emotional biases that then we seek to confirm with data. And yeah. whatever data you throw at those biases, you'll find a way to spin it, uh, to, to make it fit what your paradigm is. But if we're, like you said, if we're humble in the face of our lack of knowledge, but we're also open. So, okay, there's not good evidence for hydroxychloroquine. Doesn't mean that we couldn't find good evidence if Correct. we did a well-designed trial. So we should do the trials. Right. Uh, you don't shut them down, right? Or uh, whatever it is. Cloth mass is an interesting one because <clears throat> when I initially heard about this, my unconscious bias is this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Um, throwing a bandana on someone, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna think it's a magic shield, and right. they're gonna avoid all the other things. Now, but I would love to see myself proved wrong with good data showing that this is actually helpful at a population level. Now, we may not have the luxury of that. So here's a question: the precautionary principle, right. which is banded around, like how does that? What is that? How does that apply to something like, say, cloth masks in this case? Yeah. No, I think that's a terrific question. I mean, when I when I follow the debate on this issue, I guess I would say, one, you know, I don't have a dog in the race and I don't have the answer for you, but I can at least talk you through sort of how I would approach it. One, I see a lot of people talking about the particle size that's trapped, um, you know, in whatever piece of fabric you put over your mouth. And I want to say that that's important information, but that's not the be-all, end-all. Because wearing a mask is not just the particle size trapped. It's a lot of other things. So we have to be clear about what the intervention is. The intervention is a population level dictates to wear or not wear masks. So part of that will be, um, you know, the particle size caught in the fabric, but other parts will be whether or not you touch your face more, whether or not you're more likely to go out, whether or not you feel that invincibility or the invulnerability. 
Part of that will also be whether or not a political faction in the country that doesn't like being told what to do will try to thwart you, whether or not they'll protest, whether or not they'll be even more resistant to lockdowns, whether or not people will be more or less likely to cheat, whether or not people will be more or less likely to hoard medical grade masks. Because if you say cloth mask is good and 95 must be better, you're just keeping that for yourself. So maybe I will start to hoard it. So all of these kind of downstream effects in a huge complex ecosystem are part of that recommendation. And what I think is the best way that you will handle this is you got to get a group of table, you got to get people at a table together um, to think about this the way you think about foreign policy. You know, this is almost like making a decision like, should we assassinate, um, you know, a general in another army? Um, the answer an is yes. The answer is always yes. <laughs> Depends on who it is. Um, and, it, and as we saw recently, somebody got away with it. But, um, mm. but you might not always get away with it. There might be unanticipated consequences. And you want people at the table who are comfortable at least saying what you might be missing. And ultimately, you may decide, as you point out, that it's reasonable to say, let's just do this. We have enough to say this is going forward. There's a little uncertainty. Of course, there always is. But we got enough. Um, but I think it's important to have that dialogue and to be very careful about messaging because I think, you know, it's dangerous when you start to overstate what science has shown um, in the pursuit of getting what you want, which is people to do something. It's dangerous because it could cut the other way. Hydroxychloroquine, I think, is a great example. I mean, at the end of the day, we have a bunch of ongoing studies looking at prophylaxis and healthcare workers to the French discovery trial, which is going to answer this in critically ill um, COVID patients. Those have not yet read out. Instead, we have a bunch of quasi-experimental propensity score match, weak methodology papers. And if you want to hang your hat on that, and if you want to make hydroxychloroquine about this president, you're playing a dangerous game because a randomized trial could easily come and find the, other, the opposite conclusion. We've all lived through that. So I guess what I would say is, you know, you want to depoliticize these decisions and you want to bring people to the table who can at least have, I think, an honest discussion about what's known and what's unknown. One thing I'm taking out of what you just said, which is brilliant, by the way, is complexity is the fabric of reality when it comes to biological systems and yeah. social systems and political systems. So there's a reductionism that we like to do, which is we reduce everything to, here's a mechanism, this is a particle size, this is the fabric that stops it, therefore, three dots, we should all wear these things. But like you said, it's more like a foreign policy decision or a high level yeah. complex decision where all the pieces are on the table. And actually, you know, somebody like Robbie Pearl from formerly from Kaiser has written about this saying, you know, there are these buckets of reality. And if we just look at one bucket, it's like, you know, the elephant and the mouse, you're only seeing like one little piece part of the elephant. You're not seeing the whole organism and you're making decisions that don't make sense. They're reductionistic. Pulling that back to cancer, there's a reductionism kind of inherent in Western medicine yeah. and particular to cancer. It's yeah. a receptor problem, it's right. a gene problem, it's right. a this. What are your th what's your thinking on the reductionism in cancer therapy and how we might think about it or transcend it or what are what's a better approach? Uh, so well put. You know, I think maybe part of the reason why you and I sort of think similarly, I think, on this topic is that there's no profession where you are more exposed to the limits of reductionism than medicine. It's constantly humbling. You practice medicine for a decade or two decades, and so many things that made perfect reductionist sense just don't work when you test them right, you know? And that's something that you and I have lived through, but I think a lot of people, um, you know, in different fields, they haven't lived through it the same way. And so that's why I think we have different attitudes towards reductionism. Cancer medicine is the great example. You know, we always believe that we have the perfect key for the lock, the, the drug for the mutation. Um, but the reality is that every cancer drug that's been tested um, seemed plausible to somebody. It had a rationale. And yet only about 6% of them actually make it to the U.S. market and maybe a smaller fraction is actually beneficial. You know, so even things that are plausible face extremely long odds, you know, one in 100 odds. Things that are plausible in a mouse may face one in 10,000 odds or one in 100,000 odds. Um, so plausibility might be important, but it certainly is not enough. It's necessary, perhaps, but not sufficient. Um, and I think that's something important that we learn, I think, as doctors um, that uh, is, gives us a unique perspective on any debate, whether it's, you know, should you take hydroxychloroquine right now based on, you know, in vitro assay data that it prevents viral shedding? Or should you, you know, start using a novel targeted drug for a mutation just because it's there and just because you got the drug? Um, you know, it gives us a little bit of, I think, uh, healthy skepticism. I agree a thousand percent. What's interesting is to watch how that 
how that evolves over the course of your career and right. as you get wiser. So right. when I started down this route, you know, I was a Stanford resident. I just believed every single drug. You know, I had this thing like we ought to just put uh, in the water supply. Uh, aspirin, Lipitor, um, a beta blocker. The poly pill in the water, yeah. The poly pill in the water, yeah, and that will yeah. just cure you know, yeah. 80% of the chronic disease yeah. we're seeing because we have a bias because we're seeing these sick patients come in and we're putting them on these drugs that have these kind of very marginal yeah. benefits. To, yeah. But at the time, I was all I was as reductionist as you can get. You figure out the reset. Gleevec had come out. We're talking yeah. about this is a one problem, one receptor, we cure the thing. And um, the, the, the more I practiced, the more I saw these are complex biologic systems that the reductionist plausibility uh, approach fails actually more than it succeeds. There are only a handful of times when it succeeds. And the majority of times it's much more complex than that. So what what's I, the, I, yeah. is that no, what you found too? Oh, my experience is just like yours. I mean, I remember being a medical student and thinking, you know, these must really work. They must all have great evidence. They must make sense. They make so much sense biologically. You know, the way we're trained in medicine, we spend two years in classrooms learning, you know, drug hits this target. This is the pathway. It makes perfect sense. But then you start practicing clinical medicine and you realize that empiricism is fickle, that the reality of human body is often marvelously more complex than any pathway that you've studied. And in fact, the pathway may only be sort of a crude map. It might be like the map maker in the 1800s, you know, with a map of the globe or in the 1400s. They don't even know the new world exists. And that might be to some degree what our maps are like today. And so I think it's so easy to believe that, you know, 2020, this is the best we're ever going to understand biology. But the reality is a thousand years from now, they'll, they'll scoff at sort of our understanding. It's very superficial. In contrast, you know, well-done randomized trials, those do answer like really basic claims like, should I take this drug? Does it going to benefit me or not? On average, you know, what does that result look like? So I guess I really feel similarly that, you know, going through medical training, change the way I view this issue, yeah. Yeah, no, and, and like you said, there's a way to find out at least, will this work on average? On average, right. For what the question is, assuming it's a well-designed, with, with, a, with, a good, with good endpoints, right. and you're asking the right questions, and you've controlled for bias as much as you can, and the, ran, the randomization and the double-blinding and all of that. So again, understanding, teaching critical thinking, teaching right. complexity thinking, teaching trial design, those kind of things are probably more crucial than memorizing the Krebs cycle, or oh, yeah. you know what I-cell disease is and the metabolic pathway that contributes to it. One question I have for you, and this is something, again, I get a little uh, woo-woo on this sometimes because I have strong feelings on sort of a, the epistemological nature of reality, but we won't get into that. But I'll say <laughs> this. What if part of the reason we're struggling with complexity is that we're moving around icons on, a, on an interface that we're not actually seeing the underlying zeros and ones or the transistors underneath it. So we're seeing, you know, molecule receptor, but really the, the complex interactions are beyond our current ability to to perceive. And so we're reducing these things the best way we can, but then we're scratching our heads when it doesn't work out the way we thought. Um, do you think there's something going on with, say, a, you know, a mind-body connection we don't understand that's mediated through, you know, whether it's chemicals or something we don't understand? Or in your experience, what do you think's going on? Like, why are we why are we so prone to sort of fooling ourselves to reductionist thinking? Like, where does that come from? Yeah. I guess, I mean, my my best guess would be, and I'm not an expert at this, but my best guess would be that, you know, the human brain has evolved to make sense of causality at a certain level. You know, if I, um, you know, if I jump off this cliff, if somebody falls off this cliff, they're going to die. You know, huge sort of dealt big signals. Um, you know, if you get gored by this animal, you're going to be injured. Um, you know, um, in, in sort of a certain space, our brain has evolved. Um, uh, and we're really good at making decisions in those frameworks, when caught, when when sort of the benefit of an intervention is massive, we can see that with our naked eye. Our brains can process that. Um, but when we start talking about medical therapies, benefits are often very small: two percent absolute mortality benefit, three and a half percent. Your experience is often very misleading to detect a two percent benefit. You have to three thousands of patients, and you may not necessarily see that. Um, similarly, reductionist thinking makes so much sense when you're talking about like why do dominoes fall, or you know why do the seasons change, or these kinds of things um, that human beings have always sort of experienced. Um, but they might not make sense when you're talking about intracellular processes and signaling that's happening in three dimensional space um, at a very marvelously more complicated way than what your diagram is capturing. Um, it may not be sort of making as much sense. So I think, you know, we have this tendency to use our prodigious brains in this novel way, and it could be prone to error. 
That that's actually a really brilliant way to look at it. That our minds just didn't evolve, you know. And Richard uh, Dawkins and others have said that we really kind of human minds evolved to understand mid-range objects. Yes, that's not, a nice way to put it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not the very large and the very small. Not the yeah. very fast and the timeless. So, yeah. so and it makes sense because that's how we exist in the world. That's why we are able to reproduce and we've been so successful. And also, I think reductionism has been remarkably successful to the degree that it has. For example, a vaccination is a very reductionist idea. It's like, give foreign body mount response, therefore immune to disease. And And it actually works in many cases. But now we're seeing that when we're talking about a vaccine for COVID, well, this is a new agent. We're using new approaches. There's a complexity that we do need to understand. And the way you understand it is through trials. Yes. So the biologic plausibility is one thing, but you do need to study it, which is why, you know, even Paul Offit and I had these discussions about yeah. vaccines. You want to make sure that it's safe because if you screw up a vaccine, you hurt healthy people. Any thoughts on the vaccine development process from what you've learned about cancer development? Yeah, I guess I would say, um, I, I guess I would say, you know, I've been reassured by what's been happening so far. You know, we've got some candidate vaccines that are creating neutralizing epitope bindings um, antibodies, which is great. Um, but I, I do think, you know, vaccine development is not uh, very fast. Uh, it, it It's important to not, it's important to go fast, but not to rush. Um, and it's important to make sure you're getting good efficacy studies on the back end. So you really have some confidence that this is going to do, um, you know, what you hope it does. And I guess I hate to say it, but, you know, uh, I, I'm a big pro-vaccine person in general. You know, I, uh, I I believe vaccines are responsible for so many gains in human health. And I lament uh, this pervasive kind of societal attitude that some vaccines are problematic. But I also acknowledge that we live in a world that is incredibly divided on vaccines. And so it probably requires a little extra caution to make sure there's no unanticipated safety signal that somebody might anchor onto and take in a misleading way and use it to perpetuate sort of a bad movement. So I think you want to be careful on on this. I'm a little optimistic, but I know there's been no coronavirus vaccines to date um, and that not all viruses have been able to have a successful vaccine. Um, and so I also have a little bit of skepticism, but um, I, I'm hoping that we're able to get there in the next year. Yeah, I'm with you on this. We have to do it right or else you continue to stoke the fires yes, of anti-vaccine the, sentiment, meant, yeah. which, are, which is, again, the questioning of anything, any medical intervention, I support wholeheartedly. Yes. The, but the thing with vaccines that I think is interesting is we did, yes, it was questioned. There was the study from right. Wakefield, which right. eventually was retracted because retracted. science works when yeah. you do it right. Yeah. And so it's been looked at, you know, something like HPV vaccine, for example, I mean, preventing, potentially preventing cancer. Um, there's a lot of resistance because it's new, but it's been studied for over a decade. It right. has so many trials um, that that you know you start to go well. Okay, well, they keep moving the goalposts. Like, what <laughs> what do we really need to show now? Right. With that one though, it's interesting. So, have they actually shown a direct cancer prevention, or is it all sort of precancerous lesions, that sort of thing? What's your take on that? Do you know? It's been a while since I reviewed the literature, but my last take was, um, you know, in pooled meta-analysis, you certainly so, show a reduction in CIN uh, 1, 2, and 3, which are sort of the the high-grade, uh, you know, almost cancer lesions. Um, I, I'll have to double-check if we've actually got a pooled analysis reduction in cervical cancer. Um, and, and that might be challenging, particularly in Western nations where, um, you know, there's this thing on the back end that's going to save you from cervical cancer, which is the Papanicola uh, testing the pap smear. Um, uh, I think uh, there are a number of investigators uh, through Cochrane right now, uh, particularly this guy Tom Jefferson, who did the reanalysis of Tamiflu, who are taking a close look at, at some of the HPV trials. But I think, you know, you're, you're drawing something that's really important, which is that um, just because you want to know the endpoints that have been shown and not shown, um, just because you want to reanalyze the studies uh, or, or perhaps take a, a new look at things, um, that, that's legitimate scientific inquiry. Uh, that, you know, and that should be encouraged. At the same time, we have to acknowledge there are a lot of, you know, uh, crazy ideas about vaccines out there, uh, particularly childhood immunization, and, and that's something we want to dispel. And you can do the two things at the same time. You know, that's something that I, I, I noticed some tension about online. Yeah, that's a key point because you can actually distinguish scientific inquiry from crazy conspiracy things. Exactly right. Yeah. By by some of those some of those things, you know, like if yeah. if you're constantly moving the goalpost like okay, no, this is the evidence I need to show. Okay, we reached that. 
Oh, no, actually, it's this evidence. <laughs> well, yeah. at that point, you're realizing they've already decided there's nothing right. that you're going to do to convince. That's and a fair point, yeah. It, that's a piece of it. I think the other thing is pulling up fake experts, like people that are, you know, like this Judy Mikovits person from Plandemic or whatever, that they're right. not real experts in this, but they, they come out. And there, there's, a, uh, there's a few different ideas there. Fake um, but, experts, yeah. That, I mean, I think that is a common tactic, that somebody who, um, you, know, uh, you know, once walked on Stanford campus, now they're an expert, you know, somebody who uh, passed hey, through Harvard, yeah. I'm very sensitive to that. <laughs> I also once more time walked... there. You spent a little more time there. <laughs> I, I've slept on Stanford campus on call many, many days. Yes, yeah, so I'm yeah. not sure if it counts, but yeah, yeah. No, I hear you exactly. Yeah. Um, now, one of the things, so in your, in your original book, what was it called, the Medical Reversal book? Ending Medical Reversal, yeah. Ah. Uh, a, a title that made you want for a better title. And so that's why the next book is Malignant. I improved one thing, yeah. Oh, Malignant is good. It's powerful. Yeah. It's, it's more it's, powerful, yeah. That's very Trumpian. It's like power, <laughs> Malignant. Oh, boy. I know, I know. I, that's, oh, that's a whole nother discussion. That's a whole but nother. So that's another It's hour. persuasion. It's about persuasion. Yeah. So, so um, in medical, the Ending Medical Reversal yeah. piece, so what are some good examples of things where we've totally reversed course in modern medicine on, on, a, on a care path? Yeah, that's a. I mean, that that's a that's a that's a good question. I mean, I guess I think for many people, especially doctors of a certain generation, the hormone replacement therapy was mm. sort of massive. I mean, you had um, many many internists counseling uh, women who were peri and postmenopausal um, that if they were to take uh, estrogen supplements, they would lower the risk of cardiovascular events. Um, they would strengthen their bones potentially, um, and they would have probably a slightly higher risk of cancer, but it was sort of negligible. And you had widespread sort of promulgation of hormone replacement therapy, you know, heavily funded by Wyeth, um, that sort of doctor detailing, getting people to do this based on sort of a classically flawed observational study, the nurse's health study. Um, and then along in the early 2000s, you had the Women's Health Initiative, which showed that if anything, thromboembolic and cardiovascular events are increased by the use of estrogen replacement, particularly in the sort of postmenopausal women who were getting this. Um, mm -hmm. I think that for many people was just sort of a seminal moment. Um, in my life, I think one of the biggest reversals has been our shifting attitudes towards stent placement um, for chronic stable angina. Um, first, in the COURAGE trial, where um, we found that there was, in fact, no reduction in MI, no mortality benefit, um, which has sort of largely been replicated, I think, by ischemia. Um, and then in the Orbita study that came out just a couple years ago that showed even the subjective improvement of treadmill exercise time, that might be due in part to a placebo response. And so when they did a sham control, that appeared to sort of evaporate to a large degree. And I guess the reason it was so striking for me was, um, you know, doctors of my generation um, and patients who we cared for, um, they often believed that the procedure was improving those outcomes. And survey after survey of patients shows they think they're getting a stent because it improves their longevity when we, in fact, know that it does not for chronic stable angina. And again, here, you know, I'm careful to say not for everything. Obviously, for STEMI, it's an incredibly life-saving procedure. But for this one class, which is a large financial, um, you know, implication for the stent, uh, it really has sort of lackluster data. Um, so that, I think, is another classic example. And then we could talk about, you know, all the things in the ICU we used to do, like lowering blood sugar to sort of super low targets that, you know, I failed that. to be validated. Yeah, I did that too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, early goal-directed therapy, that paper by Manny Rivers many years ago, that failed to be replicated in a couple multi-center studies. Um, you know, even some of the provocative ones like um, testing, swabbing your patients for MRSA uh, in the unit and then wearing the gown and glove precautions. We have star ICU randomized trial. We have bug. That's something that still largely to this day, you know, persists. Um, so we've had a lot of reversals. And, you know, the more you look for them, the more you see them, I think. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> the scary thing. The more yeah. you look. And the stent thing is fascinating because I yeah. had Rita Redberg on the show oh, from yes. UCSF. Oh, man, we talked about that. And, you know, I mean, she gets hate mail from cardiologists because this is their bread and butter. Yeah. And we're only as good as our incentives. We'll actually believe believe that we're doing the right thing if yeah. you know we're paid to do it there's something about that and you're trained to do it and there's biologic plausibility you open it. there's a clogged drain right. a clogged pipe you open it right. the patient gets better it right. just makes sense but unfortunately right. like everything we said th th that reductionist causality doesn't necessarily um doesn't necessarily make sense now in the ICU it's interesting because again 
the quality of the studies matter. So the vitamin C prednisone oh, great example. Uh, right. cocktail. Steroid. Talk, talk yeah, to me right. about that. I had Merrick on the show in the early days. He came to Vegas when he first put out this stuff and we were asking him, and I was asking him about the methodology he was using. And he's like, well, that's why we have randomized control trials pending. And then the randomized control trial data came out and it was like, no benefit, yeah. at least the one. Yeah, and then there, at least yeah. the one. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think that you're hitting the nail on the head, which is that... Um, you know, what, at what point is it okay to go up there on the soapbox and start shouting, I've got a cure for sepsis, or I've got a cure for, uh, you know, uh, chronic angina. And I guess, historically, it's been this sort of before and after study, this sort of case series kind of study, that's really been a large part of medical tradition, that some doctor did something 50 times, it looked like it worked more than we might expect. Um, let's run with that. I think increasingly, you know, we have just been so disappointed by these things when we test them in good randomized studies that increasingly, I think a lot of us say, we got to raise the bar on the front end. I mean, I got no problem with Dr. Merrick um, wanting to innovate. In fact, I applaud him for wanting to improve outcomes. I Absolutely. guess the question is, at what point should he put out the press release? And in my mind, especially in a field like ICU medicine, where we've been burned so many times, you don't put out the press release until you got the results of the randomized trial. I think we got to move the goal. We got to move that bar a little bit mm. um, because we live in an environment and people will anchor on to, you know, you raise this question, which is why do doctors, you know, do things over and over again, even if they get emerging evidence that, you know, it's not doing what you think it's doing. And I think you're, you're on to something that part of it is a huge financial incentive, that there are entire fields of medicine that get reimbursed heavily for doing certain things. You know, you and I are in, in the internal medicine camp. Uh, you're, you're a hospitalist, so, you know, you have less of a degree. Um, I'm an oncologist, so, of course, we have a huge reimbursement when we prescribe IV drugs that, that fuels sort of oncology revenue. Um, right. Proceduralists have it to, a, I think, a high degree. But I don't think that's the whole story. I think the other part of the story is um, you actually um, – you, you get patients – complimenting you all the time. I can imagine you putting in stents all the time and you seeing somebody in clinic a few weeks later and they say, Doc, y you changed my life. I feel so much better. You know, that was fantastic. I just feel better. And they may really feel better, but it might be, of course, a placebo response. So when you couple this sort of doctors wanting to do good and getting the constant feedback and praise from our patients, which we all get because especially if we're, you know, good doctors, and you couple that with the financial incentive, I think you have like the methamphetamine of being a doctor. It's highly addictive. The combo of a little bit of reimbursement and my patient praises me. Year after year of that, you get addicted to that. And then you get some study coming along and saying that this doesn't work. You know what? That study's got to be wrong. It's got to be false. It's got to be something wrong with that. And so I think that's part of the psychology going on here. Man, that is the that is one of the most beautiful explanations I have ever heard of this phenomenon <laughs> because I've been trying to put my finger on this because I've experienced it like so our incentives in hospital medicine are discharge yes. or yes. admit or yes. so it depends right. are they an HMO patient are they a yeah. Medicare patient and and the people from above the administrators are telling you well if they're a Medicare patient you want to keep them as long as you can if they're an HMO and they don't say this I know but, but they, they go, do they do but, find a way to put that thumb on the scale I know they do yeah they absolutely do and yeah. so you're rushing out the patients who are HMO that you're getting a flat fee for, and yeah. you're holding on to the patients that are fee for service, and that's a poison. And of course, the ones you hold on to, the patients are like, thank you for keeping him an extra day. We were so scared to take him home. You're not, they're not doing the math of every day in the hospital, they are rolling the dice that they're going to get an opportunistic infection or have an error. And I tell patients now, like the most dangerous place in the known universe, short of the center of a black hole where you can't escape, is a hospital ward. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let, me give you, let me give you another example. Yeah. You know, you're, an, you're an outpatient internist and you're running a sort of general medical practice and somebody comes along and they say, if you don't get 80% of women having mammograms, you're not going to get your bonus this year or we tie your bonus to that. Now suddenly, yeah. you're financially incentivized to do something that if we're perfectly honest, it should be an honest discussion about. It should be something that at least we have a shared discussion about. You're incentivizing the doctor then the doctor goes along, and in fact, you do more mammograms, you're going to find more DCIS. About that, there's no dispute. You'll find more disease. And so you get that feedback. Wow, I'm finding things and I'm getting paid. That is a 
strong and perverse incentive. And I think these kind of incentives, like you're hinting at, like the reason they're problematic is that we believe they do not align with what's the best interest of the patient. The mm. best interest of the woman in general medical care is to have an honest discussion, make the choice that's right for her. The best interest for your patients is to have you as a doctor using your judgment, whether or not they're safe to go or, or should stay, and be free from these sort of financial pressures that shouldn't govern your decision-making at all. That's the best for the patient. Um, and yet we find that that's perverted so often in medicine, um, perhaps the root of all evil in, in, all of our, in all of our fields. Oh, the root of all evil. I agree a thousand percent. I mean, this is what I've been ranting and raving about for so long, starting with just the fee-for-service perversion. Yeah. In in general medicine, it makes no sense. You know, you ought to be there to to, to, to have outcomes that matter to right. your patient, the shared decision-making, especially yeah. in cancer, especially with cancer screening, whether it's prostate, PSA, whether it's mammogram. You know, my mother uh, um, had a routine mammogram every year, a gynecologist ordered it every year, and uh, she had been on hormone replacement. She was in that camp that like had that and uh, had a, you know, one millimeter uh, estrogen sensitive tumor mm -hmm. detected, went through the lumpectomy and the axillary radiation and all of that. Mm -hmm. And it feels like her life was saved, but we have no idea whether that tumor would have regressed, whether we were over screening, whether she went through an ordeal for a year and everybody was anxious because we over screened. We just don't know. But the discussion was never had. It was just order the test. Right. And there's, and a, there's a lovely paper by Gil Welsh on this topic in JAM Internal Medicine. And basically it says, you know, a woman who finds a breast cancer through mammography um, will feel as if her life is saved. We often hear such stories. And Gil Welsh does his very best to estimate what was the probability that life was really saved, uh. factoring in that would she have found the tumor a couple weeks later when she felt her breast, factoring in what's the, what do we know the mortality reduction of mammography is? And I think Welch finds that under a set of plausible assumptions, it's about 15%. Um, that's what Welch finds. So it's about you know the minority of people um, whose life is truly saved, but of course everyone will feel that way. And just to give you one more example, you know, along the topic of cancer medicine, you know, in my mind, there are a couple of fundamentally perverse, you know, financial incentives in cancer medicine. One is that practices receive a percentage markup of the drugs we administer. So Medicare for a long time was 6% markup. It's gone down to maybe 4.25%, but it's a percentage markup of the drug. So if you have two drugs, drug A costs $100,000 or drug B costs $10,000, and you're getting a 4% markup you're going to be drawn towards prescribing drug A. If that's factoring into your practice revenue, um, your hospital solvency, um, the money that goes to your division, um, you're going to be drawn to that. And that is a fundamental and perverse bias that they've been many efforts to correct that um, through policy changes, but they have been fought tooth and nail by often physicians and physician groups who ostensibly probably shouldn't be fighting that. I think that would be a good alignment of incentives. But, you know, wherever you are from a proceduralist to, you know, oncologist to even, you know, a hospital-based medicine, there, we see over and over as doctors ways in which we've led administrators. And, you know, I, I, I don't blame physicians. I think these are, these are led by other people. Create incentives for us that have, I think, damaged the care that we could provide. Thousand percent, thousand percent. That's why we have to seek out leaders that are clinically trained, that understand yeah. the importance of incentives and also understand the importance and complexity of how we deliver care. And I, even in the comments now, Vinay, we're going to see people saying, I was saved by mammogram, you yes. know, and, and if we, we should be screening everybody. Now that gets to the other question relating to this. We talked a little bit about placebo effect and this mind-body kind of interaction especially with stent with, you know, sham surgeries, like they have these yeah. really profound yeah. effects. What's going on there, man? Because you, you, <clears throat> you take care of people who are at their most vulnerable cancer patients. Yeah. What is this placebo effect? What's going on? Yeah. So that's, that's fascinating. I mean, you know, we, it's been studied uh, a, a lot and, you know, there's this guy at Harvard that somebody should have on, Ted Kapchuk. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kapchuk, does, yeah. Yeah. Who does a lot of this kind of work. But I guess I've noticed a few things about placebo effect. So, um, you know, uh, obviously, um, for, for some sorts of endpoints, placebo effect is not as relevant, such as living longer. Um, that's something that to date we don't know of any placebo trial that actually gets somebody to live longer. But for endpoints like how much your joints ache, like how much um, chest tightness you have, like how easy your breathing is, subjective sort of symptom-driven endpoints, we learn over and over the placebo effect um, 
often is large, that getting something and being told this is going to make you feel better, or this can help, um, that's often a powerful stimulus to actually feel better. Um, if it's invasive, maybe it's even more provocative and powerful. Um, if it's paired by, you know, physical therapy before you do it and physical therapy on the back end, if it mandates some period of bed rest, um, you know, if it has all these things built into it, if it costs more, um, you know, that can all give the impression that it's uh, better. You know, I, I once, you know, I've heard and I've looked to some degree, but it's been a while since I've looked at this literature, but it's the same thing is true for like glasses of wine. If I served you a couple yeah. glasses of wine and told you it was like a thousand dollars, you're going to say, this is delicious. Um, and if I told you it was two buck Chuck, you're going to say, oh, this is swill. Um, and, but maybe you actually can't tell it apart if I actually, you know, blinded you and misled you a little bit. Um, and I heard that the average American can't tell red or white wine apart, uh, blindfolded right. if it's at the same temperature, you know, That's um, right. And similarly, you know, there've been some studies about violin playing, um, where people are playing Stradivarius or other violins, and they blindfold the person playing, who's even, you know, sort of a gifted um, a violinist, and they cannot tell the difference, or they don't know which one is necessarily better. So, so much of, you know, what we expect is the expectation, the branding, um, you know, this is true for, you know, why you think Pepsi is uh, better than, you know, the store-bought soda, and why you think, um, you know, this new pill is going to make you feel better then, you know, uh, uh, even if it's just a placebo effect. I think that's so true for human beings. I think it really is. And actually, I mean, I speculate uh, that uh, I'm actually not a physicalist. So I actually think like uh, we're starting with consciousness and spinning up a world. Oh, so if you oh. actually see things, and again, you can scientifically kind of look at it that way. It's equivalent to looking at it with physical stuff spinning up a world, solves the hard problem of consciousness. We've done some shows on this. But regardless of that, the mind is a powerful potential healing or obstructive tool. Right. And it, it used to be we were really good, doctors were really good at harnessing that placebo yeah. effect because they, they didn't really, you know, they're like, here, I'm going to give you Obacalp. You right. know, and they would write a prescription, <laughs> placebo spelled backwards, or, right. you know, just the, the, the talking and the connecting and the saying this is a powerful thing and the ritual of it and the laying of the hands. You know, Abe Verghese talks about this quite a bit, um, was very, very powerful. And nowadays we've we've kind of been commodified, I think, again, by ad administrative business types that want to have throughput and money as the primary thing. But the art and the connection of it is lost. So you end up, you know, like if you if you put a stent in, that's a powerful act yeah. on another human being. You've right. done something powerful to their heart. And why can't we have that where they sit down and go, okay, so what's going on? We're going to give you these very powerful drugs that stabilize the inside of your, right, of right. your vessels. Yeah. And you know, that's a great example because I've actually seen, um, you know, over, over my career at one point, an interventional cardiologist pulled the patient in the back after he had stented chronic stable angina and said, look at, this is the before, look at that blood flow, you know, pitiful, barely getting through. Now look at it after just gushing through, go ahead and tell me you have chest pain. Go ahead and tell me this is amazing. You know? And when you, wow. when you, when you plant that, in someone's mind, I can promise you, that's a very powerful sort of feel better. Imagine if we had the same sort of resources in medicine. You know, I'm going to put you on all these drugs and let's watch this video of how it's going to regress the plaque over time and help with sort of, um, you know, the micro vessels of the heart and improve blood flow and decrease your angina. You know, if we if we had the equal salesmanship of some of these proceduralists, perhaps our, benef our, the, our therapies would, you know, work better. Um, but you're right, all doctors, to some degree, once you know what works and what doesn't work, um, you, you want to go in there and, and give it your best sort of, um, you know, optimism, and you want to reassure people, and that's part of being a good doctor, and doctors throughout history have always done that. The only thing that we're asking for these days is hopefully the therapy actually does work. And uh, right, right, yeah. So that's the that's the that's the new thing. Yeah, right. Because because regardless of how the universe is constructed, there is actual causality. <laughs> like right, things yeah. either work or they don't. It's not just all mind created, right? right. And and I think that actually, um, I think to the degree that we see the alternative medicine industrial complex spinning up, right. they offer those black and white hope. Uh, things, yeah. especially in cancer scammery right. and, you know, Brzezinski and these other guys that, that are really offering hope. And they're saying black and white, I have this, you know, 95% cure rate and, you know, the Western docs aren't treating you right. We have to do better in Western medicine of connecting. I think that's why the, you know, the naturopaths and the alternative medicine people do so well is they actually listen to their patients, they connect, they, and so that, that, that relates to cancer therapeutics a bit. I wanted to ask you this, how do you deal with the concept of hope in your patients? Because it seems to be one of these things that comes up in cancer therapy. Don't take away hope or give hope or whatever it is. How, what, what is that word hope and how does it translate into your own bedside manner and how you talk to patients who have That's very difficult conditions? 
That's a great question. I mean, I guess I it translates. In, I mean, so I guess I, I want to start by saying that what you're saying is is true. Hope is important. And I think what you want to foster as an oncologist is reasonable hope and help people to achieve what's possible. And what's possible? You know, where possible we can cure. Sometimes we can just merely extend survival. Sometimes, unfortunately, we can not do that. And the best we can do is to improve symptoms, make people feel better. And sometimes as doctors, particularly oncologists, our role might be even more spiritual in the sense mm. that, you know, our goal is to facilitate connections with somebody, figure out, you know, is there a loved one that they could maybe um, reach out to that they want to reach out to, to help them in their own mind, understand their situation so they can make these choices that are right for them. So I guess, you know, what are the things that I do as a doctor in terms of sort of having thought about this a little bit? Um, I guess I'm important. One thing that's important for me is to, uh, on the first visit with somebody, I always want to make it very clear if I believe the goal is to eradicate the cancer or cure it or merely to extend survival or improve symptoms. I just want that to be crystal clear because I'm sure you know, probably even more than I know because you are hospitalist often on taking care of these patients, that when oncologists don't do a good job of that, that's a poison um, that affects mm. someone's care until often the end of life and can compromise a good end of life if you don't make that very clear. Um, I, I don't always like to get into prognosis and survival on the first visit because I think that that might, can often be overwhelming and I want to have a chance to know somebody a little bit better and to understand what they want to know and what they don't want to know. And so on a second visit, I'll really probe that kind of a, a little bit, which is what do you want to know about survival? What do you wish I would tell you? And I think the people are different, that you and I probably as doctors, we want to know the nitty gritty. I mean, I think that's just the nature of kind of who we are. Um, but some people are more comfortable with, you know, I don't want to know all the details and they want to have some sort of open-endedness to, you know, not to know everything. I mean, and then the next thing I want to say is that, you know, no doctor knows how long anyone's going to live. Uh, if we were good at that, you know, um, um, it would be evident, but we're not very good at that. Uh, the next thing I like to do is give people ranges of prognosis rather than single numbers. I like the 20th and 80th percentile. Um, I do that to give people a range of what's realistically possible, what we can realistically hope for, but not the 99th and 1st percentile, which I think people anchor to and can lead to sort of maybe some irrationality and some maybe false mm -hmm. hope. Um, I And I like to do that if you take a treatment A and if you take treatment B and if you don't take any treatment at all. I like to give these ranges, help people kind of conceptualize what are the different paths. And then I talk a lot with people about, you know, what matters to you? What's important in your life? Who's important to you? What do you do on the weekend? You know, just kind of the conversation you and I would have over a beer. Um, that's so important to get to know your patients. And, you know, I've had the privilege of practicing at a lot of different places from the National Cancer Institute um, to Oregon's VA. And I will tell you that human beings in this country are remarkably diverse in what they want and what they value. And there are people out there in cancer who are going to sign up for a phase one trial um, with infinitesimal odds that it's going to you know, be beneficial for them. Um, and there are people out there who even therapies that you think would be a no-brainer and that anyone would want to take, there are people out there who say that that's not good enough for them and they don't even want to do that. And they have other things in their life they want to do. And I think being a good doctor is knowing that um, you got to respect people where they are and from where they come from. And I guess I would say the last thing is, you know, I don't claim to be um, – have all the answers here. I think medicine is the one thing, part of the best thing about our field is that you're always working on your bedside manner till the day you retire. Um, and, and maybe even thereafter, you're still thinking about how you could have done things better. And the moment you think you're good uh, is the moment you start to fail. You have to always try to do a little bit better tomorrow than you did today. And so that's like, that's how I approach it. Man, that's, <clears throat> that is required listening, I think, for anybody in the healthcare sector or any human being in general, because this is true how we deal with our parents if they're going through right. a health. Right. We want to project our own desires onto them and our own clinging or aversion or whatever right. it is. And just recognizing what your own bias is and then listening to that person in front of you is, is key. You know, and speaking of that bedside manner piece, that, that's powerful that you're always working on it. So a crazy thing happened to me that yeah. I told my supporters who subscribe to the show and I'm going to have this person on my show. So I got an email the other day, and it was um, from a nurse who's an ER nurse. And she said, hey, I've been a fan of your show. I love your videos on this and that and the other thing. But you always struck me as kind of familiar, and I couldn't figure out what it was. Yeah. And then I dug into your background, and I was like, oh, no. So you were the doctor who took care of me at this oh. community hospital uh -huh. where you used to rotate back in 2007 or whatever. Yeah. And here's the story of how you treated me and what you said to me. And you were the villain in this story. 
And it was, you know, it was an obstetric patient who I was consulted on, uh, uh, shortness of breath. I want her to tell the story on the show because I thought it was so powerful. And, and I immediately was in denial. I'm like, wait, no, 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 no. I don't yeah, see yeah, yeah. OB patient. What are you talking about? And, and then I realized, no, wait. And she started, she responded and said, you know, here are the names of the other consultants. I said, oh, I know those guys. Wait a minute, what happened? So I got on the phone with her and she walked me through and lo and behold, I called in the middle of the night, had an interaction that for her was dismissive and, you know, and I, and I realized, oh my God, the way the patient perceives, I didn't remember that interaction, but I remembered the case. And it was, it was just like, oh my gosh, you know, like I would never say that now the way that I'm talking. So what was going on then? And so, um, so we had this wonderful phone call where it was very beautiful kind of closure and I'm going to have her on to tell That's this wonderful. story. It, 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 and, and it's crazy, though, how easily defensive you can get, because immediately but, but I was aren't like... You, you're, you're revealing the most telling part of the story, which is that your, your first reaction is to call her, and, and, and then you spend a lot of time being introspective and thinking about that situation. I think... That's that's part of that's part of it is that when you get the feedback that is not always what you want to hear and it doesn't have to be from a patient always it could be from a student or from a nurse or something like that. Um, so many times it's easy to dismiss it and the hard thing is to actually one day late at night think you know is there some truth to that and what can I do better. And so I applaud you for doing this. I'd love to, I'm going to love to check out that episode when it comes out because I think um, you know if we did that a little bit more we'd all be better off for it. You know, honestly, and I have to be honest, I don't know that I was that person back then that would have called her and, exactly. and had that conversation. That's another thing. Maturity does yeah. that to some, you know, I think that that's true. Um, and, yeah. um, you know, I think back about being a resident, you know, um, that's a time where, um, you know, if somebody had a videotape of all my encounters, um, are, are, is it possible to find something that I'm not proud of today because I was hurried, because I was so tired, because I was late, because I had a thousand things to do. I was worried about forgetting something and because somebody was going to yell at me in a very short period of time for being, you know, incompetent or, you know, worse. Um, and and so I guess I guess now that I'm an attending, at least, you know, it's the thing to say that, you know, I, I, I I'm not under all those pressures. And so I'm going to put like extra energy into doing this and, and trying to be better at it. Um, uh, but I hope I did a good job as a resident, too. But, you know, I uh, but someday maybe I'll find out. We yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> if we had that videotape, man, I know I'd find things. I'd find things Black that I'm very man. proud of. That I'm like, yeah, man, I, I really nailed that. Too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then but man, I screwed that up bad. And, yeah. you know, so now as an attending, what I like to do is I like to particularly make sure I point out bright spots when people are having interactions with patients. And I say, after we leave the room, I'll say, you know what I want to tell you is the way that you put the family member at ease and you listen to them like they were the only person in the room and nothing else mattered, that is a gift. Never, ever lose that. You're completely wrong about the diagnosis and the plan, but that's that's actually a minor point compared yeah. to how you made that patient feel because that's going to be a healing thing in itself. So yeah, trying to also then teach that and role model that it's hard when we're also a little bit, or we're reactive creatures and we've been beaten down, right? Like what you said, if in five minutes, you're going to be humiliated on rounds, right? It's just part of the culture. So you're, you're tense and things are happening. And now it's like we just have all these pressures to chart and the EHR is the electronic cash register and it, it's, you know, enslaving us instead of uh, liberating right. us. Yeah. You know, I just want to tell Ugh. you one story. I mean, when I was a ret, when I was a fellow in oncology, I had the privilege of working with like, you know, very senior people at the NIH who had been practicing oncology for 30 plus years. And one day I walked into the senior person's office and he kind of had his back to me and I, I, I got his attention and, and, you know, he was actually crying. And I said, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, and then he said, no, it's okay. Uh, just give me a minute. And then he told me that a patient of his had died. And to me, um, I thought about it for a long time afterwards that what struck me the most was this is a guy who must have cared for, you know, 50,000 people. I mean, I don't know how many thousands of people he cared for over the course of 30 plus years. And so often you hear the story that oncologists must become like, you know, have suits of armor to do what oncologists do and not feel anything. And this was just a reminder that this is a guy who went a whole career um, and he still uh, is able to feel so deeply when a longtime patient of his passes away. Um, and that reminded me that, you know, I, I hope to someday be that oncologist, that that part of me is is still always there and vulnerable, uh, although we always have to sort of balance, you know, having proper professional, I think, distance, being able to keep a sober mind, but also still recognizing that, you know, we often become close to our patients and care about them a great deal. 
That's a powerful story, man. And, and it actually reminds me, I think I've told this story of basically my Hemonk uh, rotation at yeah. Stanford was one of the hardest because yeah. these are young people yeah. that are dying and we're flogging them with yeah. the best we can. And and again, as a young resident, I remember just projecting, using yeah. something that I, they called empathy, where you actually feel what that person's yeah. feeling. And, and again, I, I've made this distinction between empathy and compassion. So empathy is feeling one person's pain as your own, and it yeah. can be very blinding yeah. um, because you make decisions that are that are maybe not in the wisest interest yeah. and in short-term pain relief and you are unable to see a bigger picture and you take that home with you and it, and it hurts. Yeah. Whereas compassion is like love and concern in the face of suffering, looking at data, looking at a bigger picture, being more wise and rational and caring. It's harder to do. But what I did in that rotation is I built a wall around myself very rapidly to survive where I felt nothing. Yes, and yes. I got through the rotation yeah. and it was months later, I think I, was, I must have had a few drinks at something and I just burst into tears and was just like sitting in a in the corner of the bar somewhere just crying and my uh, girlfriend at the time who ended up becoming my wife was like what's wrong and i'm like i just remembered my entire hemonk rotation like yeah. that whole wall just crumbled and i felt it all right away and and that's the wrong way to do it really i mean it opened me back up but but it, it's retaining the the balance between that professionalism and modeling right. for our patients this strength, but at the same time feeling what you need to feel to be a human and be connected with them. So the way you described that was actually beautiful. Yeah, no, I think that uh, your story makes a lot of sense to me, which is that you know you can't you can't save it for the vacation. You got to deal with it kind of on a daily basis and strike a balance. And and you know sometimes you go a little one way, a little other way, but you're trying to steer it uh, always. I think uh, the more you practice. Ah, beautiful. So let me ask you this, because we've gone a good, um, almost an hour-ish yeah, now. Yeah, we talked a long time. Man, oh, I could talk to you for like, see, this is the thing, that we have a confirmation bias, though. I know, okay, we agree with each other a lot. I know, I watch that, That's right, but, I'm, but I know we disagree about a bunch of stuff, okay. too, but the thing is, we disagree in a way that's productive, where we right. can actually go, well, what about this? What about yeah, this? Yeah. But, but uh, let, me, let me send our viewers off on a, on, a, on a note where they have some idea of how to go where to go next? I think they should read your book, Malignant. I think Nothing. they should read your book on medical reversal, ending medical reversal. I think, though, what would you say, where should cancer therapeutics and medicine in general be going? What should we do to transform it so that we are making wiser, more compassionate, more evidence-based decisions that respect complexity and the human condition in general? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess, you know, part of the way I frame the book is um, as this juxtaposition between the biology problem of cancer and the man-made problem of cancer. And the biology problem is understanding where does cancer come from? Why do cells, you know, behave in this bad way? Why does the immune system fail to capture them? Why does our surveillance fail? That's the biology problem. And that's a tough nut to crack. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you want to crack the biology problem. What I would do is I would crank up the funding of NIH. I would fund a lot of blue skies, basic science people, and I would let them have some freedom to explore biology just for the sake of exploring biology. And I would really remove that from the political process. And I would let that funding grow kind of consistently, be reliable, be trustworthy. Um, that's how I would work on the biology problem. And I'm not a biologist, so you know that's about all I can do is to policy, to facilitate others. But the man-made problem is the problem that really is the theme of my book, which is you know how bad policy and bad evidence harm people with cancer, the subtitle. And it's about how you know, how we approve drugs, how we pay for drugs, how we run clinical trials, where the trials are run, who funds the studies, who designs the studies, who signs off on the studies. These are all ways in which we have, I think, changed the compass of cancer care away from patients and towards the magnetic pull of profit. And the more we can do to realign those two things, I think the better off we can be. And so in the last section of the book, which I call Solutions, you know, I got a chapter there for what can a patient do tomorrow? What can a trainee do tomorrow? Um, how can trainees become better as we become oncologists ourselves? Um, and then what can federal agencies do, like CMS and Medicare and the NIH? What are the policy things that they can do tomorrow? Um, and I hope that, that those chapters go some way towards answering this question of how we can get you know, what we want, which are cancer drugs that are affordable, that are available, that actually dramatically improve outcomes. And by that, I mean living longer and living better and not you know, how marbles feel under foam rubber or tumor dimensions on a CAT scan. Brilliant, brilliant. I, I think everyone should check that out. Also, your podcast plenary session is fantastic. 
fantastic. Thank you, Zidane. And it's a, it's really popular, and it goes deep in the weeds, which I love. So for people who think that I'm too broad and general, which is most people, uh, you want to actually get some science on, uh, go check out Plenary Session on all the podcast platforms, iTunes, et cetera. We'll put links to your book in the show notes. Um, man, it is so great to talk to somebody who really, I think, understands the fundamental base problems and potential solutions, and who's smart enough to actually articulate them brilliantly with a really big microphone. I mean, that oh, mic thanks. is well, freaking big, dude. That's that's pretty much, uh, <laughs> my microphone's big, but that's pretty much the description <laughs> I would use for you. So thanks so much for having me. Thanks for the work you do. Uh, you know, it's hard to do what you do and keep it so entertaining. And I know that. And when people listen to plenary session they'll realize that too because it's hard to keep it that entertaining so uh yeah thanks for what you do dude it's a real pleasure man um hey one last thing before yeah. i forget what's going on with the clotting disorders in COVID 19 this is just a side thought side, yeah, side thought i mean we did an episode on it like i think just the last one but basically the gist of it is um you know i think one the first question to ask yourself is um you know are COVID 19 patients clotting more than you would expect and i think in the beginning there were some ground for healthy skepticism, like maybe this is all just critical illness. I think right now we know that they're at least clotting as much and maybe slightly more. I think there's some studies that suggest perhaps the risk is a little bit higher. But then the bigger question I have is, you know, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to take somebody who should be on prophylaxis and crank them up to half a mega kig of low molecular heparin? Are you going to crank them up to therapeutic anticoagulation? Are you going to give them um, DOACs for outpatient discharge? Are you going to give them potentially full dose anticoagulation in the ICU? And as some are doing TPA. And I think for all those questions, I want to see, and they're ongoing, randomized trials that show benefit. I've seen a lot of big names and big voices say, we can just pull the trigger and start treating. And I that would give me a lot of pause because... Um, I know, you know, like all of us know, but I know the risks of uh, anticoagulation can often be really severe. So I guess my takeaway is, yeah, I'm worried about the clot risk, and I'm waiting for these studies that should tell us whether or not we can crank up the anticoagulation. Great, great. Thank, yeah, thank you for that. I just had to get that question in before yeah. I forget because it's been on my mind. Um, lovely. Dude, you'll come back when the shelter-in-place ends and yeah, be let's do physically— Yeah, in person. Now I'm in that. the bay. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah, we're in the yay area, and uh, it'd be fun. Um, we can do like a dual show or something. It'd be a lot of fun. Um, That'd be I'm great. not smart yeah. enough That'd be awesome. to be on yeah. plenary session, but you're definitely too smart to be on my show. Uh, <laughs> so ZPAC, uh, we'll put links in the thing. Thank you to everyone who supports this show. Please leave a comment, share the video, review this if you're listening on the podcast on iTunes and other platforms. It helps us a lot. Leave a uh, comment, subscribe, and I love you guys. Stay safe, and we out. Peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithms to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I want to hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.